Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. It's great to be back here in familiar surroundings. Uh, as you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, uh, the last two or three weeks have been uh, a jumble, really, of uh, material from different sources. Uh, for a couple of weeks, I was away uh, teaching uh, elsewhere, and so the audiovisual team here were kind enough to cobble together recordings of the talks I gave, and then before that, you had a couple of um, uh, shaky mobile phone videos from hotel room, uh, but uh, it's great to be back. Um, and what I want to do uh, today is to pick up um, a theme which is related to uh, an issue we've been touching on again and again, and actually quite recently as well, uh, in these podcasts. It's the issue of raising children. I've remarked um, most recently that I think this is a, uh, a task whose difficulty is routinely underestimated. Uh, two or three weeks ago, we talked about that. Um, it's very hard to find examples in scripture, for example, of uh, faithful parents raising the next generation. You can find lots of other people doing all kinds of wonderful, faithful, courageous and significant things. But the simple or apparently simple task of raising faithful kids, uh, worshipping the Lord for the next generation is almost conspicuous by its absence. Uh, I wouldn't say that's quite fair. It's its near absence, which makes it most remarkable. And then at the same time, um, we also talked uh, about the expectation that we can have that the Lord will provide for us. I don't want us to be discouraged as parents or indeed as children by the thought that uh, Scripture presents this task as such a profoundly challenging one because God promises to equip us for every good work in Christ. There's nothing that we lack in him for all of the challenges of life that he places before us. So I don't want us to come at the, the task of child rearing um, with a sense of hopelessness, but with a sober-minded sense of the tremendous responsibility that we have, the priority we ought to place upon it, and the resources that God in Christ, by his Spirit, places at our disposal as mums and dads, and indeed as young children, as young people and young adults, as we're seeking to grow the next generation of believers in Christ. So we've been thinking about that. And what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about the place of children uh, in church worship specifically, and even more particularly in the sacraments. Now, this was prompted uh, in part by some questions that I was asked by a member of the congregation here at All Saints, and I'm going to read those questions in a moment. But it's also uh, significant because at All Saints, as members of All Saints will know, uh, we adopt a practice which is somewhat unusual uh, at the present time in Reformed and Evangelical circles though it has been practiced routinely in other areas of the church, we adopt the practice of paedocommunion as well as paedobaptism. That is to say, uh, we admit baptized children of whatever age to the Lord's table. So it's very common, obviously, in Reformed and Presbyterian circles to baptize children, paedobaptism. We also practice paedocommunion. Uh, we're convinced that the qualifications for admission to the Lord's table are the same as the qualifications for baptism. So that somebody who's been welcomed into the home, so to speak, through baptism, ought to eat at the family table. Well, that raises a bunch of um, practical discipleship questions. And I want to read the questions that this very thoughtful member of the congregation here at All Saints um, uh, messaged to me. And by the way, uh, feel free always 
to email Pastor Neil or me with any questions you have, whether you want them addressed on this podcast or some other context. Um, I, I think that goes without saying. I think those of you who are members here know that, but it's just worth restating. We always want to hear from you, and um, we're happy to meet with you privately or to talk in this kind of context as well. Anyway, I emailed this guy back and said, hey, I think I might address these on a podcast. Is that okay with you? And he said, that sounds great. So here are the questions. Um, from a paedo paedo perspective, that is a perspective of embracing both paedo baptism and paedo communion, First, what do you do with covenant children who become Christians later on in life? Second, at what point does church discipline step in to turn a covenant child away from the table if they're not following Christ? Third, is there a point at which covenant children profess their own faith to elders and the congregation, as in Crater Communion churches? That's a reference to churches that um, require some kind of profession of faith um, before admitting children to the Lord's table. And then fourth, can you explain examination and discerning again? Okay, well, I'll come to that one in a, in a few minutes. Um, that's a, a more technical, exegetical question. Some of you will recognize the reference to 1 Corinthians 11. Others won't. Don't worry, we'll get there. Um, well, let me just um, begin by making a couple of observations which help to set these questions in their context. And that will then allow us to, to jump in at least to the first three um, and, and start to answer them. Uh, the foundation of the uh, inclusion of children in Christian worship and in the sacraments of the church, both as baptized children welcomed into the family and as communing children, that is um, eating at the Lord's table, can be traced at least as far back as Genesis 17, where, and this is a very familiar text, um, if I just, uh, I've got my Bible here, so bear with me while I'm flicking through the pages to get to it. Um, the Lord is talking to Abraham. He appears to him when he, Abraham is 99 years old. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. So Abraham's faithfulness or blamelessness um, is the precondition for the Lord maintaining this covenant relationship with him. Um, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You won't be called Abraham, but shall be called Abraham. So that's the change of name, the famous change of name, where it becomes clear, if it wasn't clear before from Genesis 12, that Abraham is not just going to be the father of his own biological offspring, the people of God, but that the people of God will extend to many nations. And that becomes, so to speak, ratified in Genesis 22, where Abraham's faith in the resurrection has been tested because he's ready to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. And then the Lord, or the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, well, now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld your son from me, your only son. You believed that God would raise the dead, as the New Testament author puts it. Um, and so uh, at that point, the, the blamelessness or faithfulness of Abraham has been tested. And it's, it's now clear that God will fulfill this promise. OK, so what does a promise involve? Um, well, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, verse 6. Kings shall come from you, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will never tire of explaining these verses. Some of you have heard me explain them before. Notice a couple of things. The repetition of to you and to your offspring after you. Three times in two verses, it becomes clear that the Lord is making this covenant, this relationship with Abraham and his offspring. God does not uh, give his people children born outside the community and then sit to 
waiting to see whether they're going to choose to come in. They're born within the family of God, just as they're born within the biological family of Abraham, the head of the people of God. And notice this is in a context where that family is not just Abraham's biological offspring. It's all those who have the faith of Abraham, again, as the New Testament will later put it. So what that means then is we can anticipate that this multinational community of people will experience the blessing where as we are given the gift of kids as parents, God is God to them. At least that's the expectation that this sets in place. And notice, secondly, again, I've emphasized this, the rhetorical direction that this takes. It's almost as though it leaves Abraham in the background, because by the end of verse 8, it's, I will give uh, to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's not just, in other words, that the children are included, but that the focus is on the children. It's such a tremendous promise that's in view here. Now, obviously, there's a, a lot of scriptural material to work through, which we're not going to work through now, before we get to um, the New Testament, which we're on to turn in a moment. But this promise is in the background. The promise to you and to your children is in the background of the whole of the unfolding of God's plan for human history. So when you get to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, what goes on in Acts chapter 2? You already know what goes on in Acts chapter 2. Um, uh, this is the climax of Peter's great Pentecost sermon, um, where uh, he, he's uh, just quoting a bunch of psalms, explaining the signs of tongues and the fire and so on and so forth. And he concludes his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The climax of Peter's Pentecost sermon uh, emphasizes that the signs of the outpouring of the Spirit mean that the promised Messiah who would fulfill all the promises of the old older covenants is this Jesus, this five foot ten Nazarene man whom you guys crucified. That was a bad idea to crucify him. Well, from your perspective, it was a bad idea. It was always the plan of God that it should happen and God will bring wonderful things from it. But this Jesus whom you crucified is the one who will bring all the promises of God from the older covenant eras to fulfillment, including the promise of Genesis 17, which means that when, verse 37, they're all cut to the heart and say, well, what, what are we supposed to do now? Peter says, well, obviously, repent and be baptized. Uh, and you, in the name, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. Well, which promise? Well, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit in the initial context, but in the background is the promise for you and for your children, which is an unmistakable reference to uh, Genesis 17. Uh, the promise to you and your children, I will be their God. So notice what's happening here. From Genesis 17 all the way through to Acts chapter 2, we've got this scriptural narrative arc in which God promises to be God to us and to our children. So they're included among the covenant people of God, just as we, their parents, are. It should therefore come as no surprise that throughout scripture, the children participate in the covenant meals. One of the often neglected uh, pieces of background to the doctrine of um, the Lord's Supper as it concerns children is the Old Testament sacrificial meals. The, the Lord's Supper is not just some new, totally radical invention where at the climax of a covenant renewal uh, worship service we decide to eat something. This has been going on ever since, well certainly since Pass, um, Passover and actually since before, whenever there were you know, sacrificial 
worship took place in the patriarchal era. You've got the same kind of thing going on. Um, uh, eating a meal at the climax of uh, worship service, a formal act of worship, is just part and parcel of how God instructs his people to do things. And you see this developing throughout the scriptures. And the children are included in the Passover because you've got to make sure there's enough lamb for all the uh, children in the household and so on. Now, there's a great article um, that touches on this by my old friend Matthew Mason, um, which I think is in Churchman, uh, which is a, a British uh, theological journal. Um, if you're interested, then please just ping me an email or something and I'll dig it up for you and I can, I'll can i find it. But he goes through all the Old Covenant meals and talks about how it's clear that children are included in them. And that forms part of the uh, more detailed backdrop for the claim that because God is God to these children, therefore they should be welcomed into the family through the sacrament of baptism, formally welcomed because they are part of the family. We baptise them because they are members of the covenant community. And once they're in, obviously they need to be fed at the Lord's table to be sustained by Jesus throughout their lives. And they grow up with that kind of experience of life. So that's some of the background um, that I want to highlight um, before we jump into these questions. Now, let's suppose we, we just jump into these um, questions one at a time and, uh, so to speak, try and pick up the specifics of them against the background of that um, fabric that we've just sketched. So here's the first question. What do you do with covenant children who become Christians later on in life? We see that's a really intriguing question because it reflects at least a potential subtle misunderstanding in the phrase become Christians later on in life. In what sense would you want to say that somebody to whom God is their God becomes a Christian later in life? Is that really the right way of thinking about it? I would want to suggest it's actually not. A more helpful way to think about it is to think of the young person's consciousness and awareness of the fact that God is their God growing as they do. Our expectation and hope, the normative pattern for the experience of young people as they grow up in Christian families within the church should not be that they get to a kind of crisis point um, much less a point of rebellion from which they backtrack, uh, a point of decision and then decide to become Christians. We should rather anticipate that it's more like running a long steeplechase where you know, every lap you've got two or three hurdles to jump over. Um, and as they encounter the next hurdle, as they're growing up, they'll surmount that and get over it by the grace of God and occasionally they'll slip and they'll fall flat on their face in the water trap after the hurdle but they'll pick themselves up and they carry on running. In other words we shouldn't think well they're not really running until they become Christians later. We should think they start off in effect crawling like little tiny babies do. You see the analogy breaks down slightly because the tiniest babies don't crawl but it is true that the tiniest babies have faith or rather it is the case that we should understand the disposition that the smallest covenant child has towards God as corresponding to the adult equivalent of faith. We might call it infant faith. The reason we should call it faith is because the Bible does. Let me show you. Psalm 22, 
uh, one of your, I'm sure, and my favourite psalms. This is the, the one that was uh, quoted by Jesus um, uh, at his crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, uh, verse 1. Well, that's, uh, l- there's, a, there's a less widely quoted a couple of verses later on in the psalm, verses 9 and 10, which highlight that the experience of a young covenant child in relationship with God, I will be your God, is an experience of faith. Let me show you. Verse 9, you are he who took me from the womb. This is the psalmist speaking to God. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Well, just think about that for a second. You have been my God. Another unmistakable echo of uh, Genesis 17. This is one of the texts that sits on that narrative arc we spoke of earlier. Uh, But look at what David, the psalmist here, expresses as his own life experience. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. When I was so tiny, I was being breastfed. I was like one day old. You made me trust you, O Lord. Indeed, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And the poetic parallelism suggests here that it's not, well, you are my God, my mother's womb, and then you made me trust you when I was one day old. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's um, from my mother's womb, from when I was a breastfed baby, you were my God, I trusted you. And the word for trust here is just the ordinary Hebrew word, batach, which means trust, and it's used of adults and, in this case, young children indiscriminately. Now, the point here is not that David can sort of remember having some conversion experience at the age of three days old. The the point is rather he's expressing what he understands to be the normative experience of young children, even if they cannot remember it. In other words, to put it most provocatively, uh, I only baptise believers, or more properly, I only baptise people whom I have good biblical reason to believe are believers. If I baptise an eight-day-old baby, it's because I have good biblical reason to believe that that child believes. Because I do know that that child belongs to a family of of whom God has said, uh, I'll be God to you and to your children. And I know that people of whom God says that, or David says here, that such people, like he himself, he's not setting himself apart as special here, people of whom God says, I will be your God, trust God. Now, they do so in a childlike way, an infant-like way. They can't speak and express their faith, but uh, many of you who are parents of children have had the experience of seeing a young child grow up, you know, two, three, they start to speak, they start to become more articulate, um, and they express their love for Jesus in initially simple but then gradually more complex ways. It's the path of discipleship where the path becomes more textured, um, more sophisticated conceptually as they themselves grow and are able to understand and conceptualise things more readily. So there's never a day, in other words, when it would be correct to say this covenant child who's been born and raised in a Christian home becomes a Christian. They never know a day, they never exist for a day when God isn't their God. What actually happens is that later in their life, they come to express their faith in Christ in new ways. And sometimes what happens, if they're in a context where 
Um, this understanding of covenant theology, as it's technically called, isn't expressed. If Suppose somebody's raised in a Baptist church and actually has this experience. What their pastor and their parents, well-meaning pastor and parents will do, is they'll, in effect, teach them to interpret those later expressions of a growing faith as coming to faith. So you can easily imagine, let's imagine a situation. Imagine a situation in which an 11-year-old um, uh, at uh, Presbyterian, at, at All Saints, an 11-year-old at All Saints, um, uh, has a, a, a few months of real kind of stridency and uh, rebelliousness. And um, then after a few months, it wouldn't be the first time, would it, for an 11-year-old to, you know, be bristling a little bit. That's the kind of time of life where some 11-year-olds do. Um, and then after a period of time, you know, talking with their parents, perhaps talking with their pastor, perhaps realising the inappropriateness, thinking and reflecting on the scriptures, they come to uh, a genuine, deep, heartfelt repentance. Like they, they're just really broken with remorse and sorrow for the way they've been so kind of uh, arrogant or maybe so lazy or so dismissive of their parents' authority or so grumpy or whatever it is. Now, how would we interpret that here at All Saints? Well, we'd interpret that as um, the normal process of growing in the faith. It's not ideal for somebody to go through a several-month period of rebelliousness, but it's not unknown. In that sense, it's normal in the way that sin is normal, and what somebody should do is repent of it. And what's happened there is they've taken a big step forward in their faith and their faithfulness. And if something like that has happened to you or to your children, then praise God. It's not unknown for children to go through quite extended periods of of rebellion and then to come out of them and and to in a sense their faith in Christ is deepened even through those undesirable circumstances because they're they've kind of overcome they've responded in the right and biblical way to it they've repented of that sin now if you're in a Baptist church or and many of us have got friends who are Baptists it's quite possible that that might actually be interpreted as that person coming to faith it's like you've become a Christian at that point. Now, I would say that's a misreading of the, the personal history of that child. It's, it's likely sometimes to cause problems because what will happen when they have some similar experience at 14 and 17 and 21 and 25. In some uh, church circles, what sometimes happens is people think they became Christians every year from the age of you know, 12 to 25, and then they're never quite sure whether they are. And that's an unfortunate side effect of that theological outlook but the question in effect reflects the lingering influence of that theological outlook and i want to suggest on biblical grounds that we try and resist it in summary just thinking about this question it's much better to interpret those um, significant moments of repentance during childhood adolescence even early adulthood as significant moments of repentance in the life of a growing Christian, not somebody who becomes a Christian later on in life. Now, just briefly, it's possible that the question reflects a situation where you've got someone who was baptised into a family that was really regrettably unfaithful. This happens a lot in England, actually, where... Um, the Church of England still has some kind of cultural influence and sometimes people will get baptised or get their kids done without the slightest intention of going to church because they've never gone to church since the last kid was baptised and the, the child is baptised therefore but never 
um, comes it's not raised in that kind of consistent covenantal Christian family. Well, then you've got a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that later in life, they come to faith in Christ. And I think probably what I'd say at that point is, that's the moment at which they came to faith in Christ. If their parents and family were not walking with the Lord, it's not the case that God was God to them and to their children at that earlier stage, if the family were not living as faithful Christians. What in effect happened is they received the sign of welcome into the people of God 15 and a half years before they actually experienced that welcome by faith. So we mustn't be confused. The mere fact that somebody is baptized does not confer faith. What it actually does is register them as a member of the visible formal covenant with God, in a context where their family is being rebellious against that covenant relationship and is indeed turned away from it. Now, it's possible that somebody who's baptised in that sense, or in such a context, may never come to faith in Christ, in which case what we'd have to say is that they're, in effect, sharing the rebellious outlook of their family and their parents, probably because they've learned it from their family and their parents. They've got the formal public badge of covenant membership, but there's nothing in the heart of that person to that corresponds to that. So that's an important clarification to make because it's not the case that baptism works in some magical way, removing the need for a growing faith. What actually needs to happen is that baptism works along with the internal and practical lived out realities of a young person's life, just as with an older person's life. And that actually helps us with um, questions two and three. Um, maybe we do question three first and we can see how this picture will kind of um, draw these threads together. Um, is there a point at which covenant children profess their own faith to elders or the congregation as in credo communion churches, churches that insist on some kind of profession of faith? Um, well I'd want to say um, yes and no. No there's not some kind of formal official moment at which a young person, certainly not at all saints, who's been baptized, welcomed uh, at the Lord's table, grows up within the family of the church, running that long steeplechase with all those hurdles every lap. There's no point at which they get to kind of the age of 14 and we say, right, now you've got to profess your faith in front of the congregation. There's no formal single moment like that, but there are weekly professions of faith in the worship service itself, in the creed and elsewhere. Uh, there are daily and sometimes even hour by hour professions of faith as the young person prays and there are expressions of faith as the young person lives out their growing Christian life with the years and the months um, passing. So I wouldn't want to say there's a kind of formal moment like that. There's actually a series of informal moments in almost you want it every day, wouldn't you? Every day this young person, as their capacities grow, they come to live out their Christian life with increasing uh, understanding and clarity of mind and increasing faithfulness. So then the second question, just reversing the order of numbers two and three, at what point does church discipline step in to turn a covenant child away from the table because they aren't following Christ? Well, I think the answer to that would be, and well, let's just preface this first. Um, uh, this uh, question raises the, the painful possibility that if somebody turns away from Christ in some decisive way, having previously followed him, uh, after a 
the initial reaction would be to seek to exhort the person, to challenge them, to encourage them, to rebuke them even, to draw them back to Christ. But if they steadfastly refuse, what they've done actually is turned away from Jesus completely. And at a, a certain point, a formal process of what's known as excommunication takes place where um, one might even make a public announcement that would probably be appropriate in some cases to, to, to inform the congregation that the elders and others in the congregation, our attempts to bring this person back to faithfulness have for now failed. And therefore, since the person has cut themselves off from Christ, they have excommunicated themselves. We're ratifying that decision by cutting them off formally from the Lord's table at the church. Okay, so that's what excommunication is, or um, the church discipline referred to here. So at what point would that happen? Well, um, just as the young person's faith uh, is correlated with their own uh, development and maturity, so the process of discipleship would have to be as well. You wouldn't expect from a five-year-old the kind of maturity and wisdom and faithfulness that you'd expect from a 25-year-old or from a 45-year-old. Um, it's possible, I, th I guess it's possible that a, a person in their older teenage years who was really stridently rebellious um, might get to the point where it became obvious that they were simply uh, refusing to um, follow their parents' exhortations. They just simply refused to come to church and were living in a, a really stridently rebellious, ungodly way. You can imagine the kind of things that would happen. It, it's possible that that, um, that would happen to somebody in their teenage years. I don't know of well, certainly not many instances in which um, that's the case, um, but it is it is possible. And in one sense, the way that it will be appropriate pastorally to handle those situations is in a manner that's analogous to how we handle them among adults. It, it's not something we do quickly or hastily. I remember once having a conversation with uh, a man who expressed uh, surprise and even a touch of disappointment and dismay like why haven't you disciplined such and such a person and I part of me wanted to say well we are disciplined in the broadest sense of discipling meeting with this person taking time to encourage and exhort to repentance and so on but there was also a sense of the kind of narrow focus of discipline this this person ought to be excommunicated for their conduct and I want to say well um, yes if it's not repented of but boy, that's not something you do quickly and hastily. And I think there's a there's a trigger happiness sometimes that's reflected in discussions of church discipline, which is deeply unfortunate. This is not a trivial matter at all. And therefore, it is something which we should expect to take months, if not years, of exhorting somebody before we finally reach the conclusion that this person has turned away from Christ and some more uh, action is appropriate. Uh, just before we go on to the fourth question, I want to highlight um, another feature of this understanding of the covenants, which um, is profoundly helpful in a cluster of very significant pastoral situations. The recognition that children, even very young children, have faith is profoundly helpful in understanding the right way to think about adults, who experience mental decline, uh, particularly in their older years, and also all people 
who suffer with some kind of mental uh, handicap. And I'm thinking in this context of, well, you can think of any number of uh, situations. A, a young child with Down syndrome would be an obvious example. Uh, imagine the opposite situation. If you were to require some kind of uh, affirmation of faith or worse, some certain level of doctrinal understanding and articulacy before you admitted somebody to the Lord's table, then what would you do with uh, a young person who was simply unable to uh, satisfy the doctrinal requirements? Or what would you do with an older person who started to suffer from Alzheimer's disease and became unable to articulate their faith? Tragically, I've known situations uh, in which a young person has never been admitted to the Lord's table or even never baptised, despite having been born and raised in a faithful, loving Christian family, and even situations in which an older person has been excluded from the Lord's table at the point where mental decline set in. Um, now, I want to express myself quite firmly on this point. I think that's an outrage. It's a horrific outrage to treat the people of God like that. That's not to say that um, every person who embraces a, a Baptist theology or a, a theology where they wouldn't um, uh, administer communion to young children would uh, act in such a way. Quite the contrary. It's, it's actually quite rare for uh, those kinds of events to happen. Most uh, Baptist churches and uh, paedo Baptist churches that don't practice paedo communion would recognise the, the nuance and the uh, caveats that it's necessary to have in place in order to handle those situations wisely. And they would, for example, um, baptise a young person at a certain age, um, uh, even if they had Down syndrome, even in a Baptist church, and they wouldn't withhold the Lord's Supper from an elderly person experiencing mental decline. Mercifully, this is quite rare, but it does happen. And it, when it does, it's extremely serious. It's a bad mistake. It's a pastoral catastrophe, really. Well, this picture of infant faith rescues us from that really securely because it recognises, and here's the crucial point, that faith in Christ is not the same as mental acuity and it's certainly not the same as verd verbal articulacy. Somebody can have a faith in Christ which is, so to speak, correlated to their mental capacity, like an infant, or like somebody who's mentally handicapped, or somebody, or like somebody who's got Alzheimer's disease. Somebody can still have the disposition of faith towards Christ, even without um, what we might call normal levels of cognitive function and verbal articulacy. So we would cheerfully and enthusiastically welcome people who have received the sign of the covenant, who are in uh, covenant context, who are children in Christian families, who are older folks who've lived lives of Christian faithfulness in the past, even if um, they're not able to articulate their faith in the way that um, most of the rest of us are fortunate enough to be able to. And that's just one parenthetical pastoral point. Um, just briefly, um, let me uh, jump into this last question. Can you explain examination and discerning again? Well, this is a reference to um, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, um, where he says some things which seem to many people 
to be a pretty strong argument against welcoming children to the Lord's table. Let me read it, and then I'll say a word or two about this. Um, in the middle of this chapter, Paul says, uh, verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, you wouldn't want to do that, would you? So verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, there's the examining, verse 28, and the discerning, verse 29. And some have said, well, uh, to discern the body uh, means either to understand something about the nature of Christ's presence at the table, or to, to understand something about the community that you're a part of. And to examine yourself means that you're capable of scrutinizing your own desires and your own motives to make sure that you don't, verse 27, uh, eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And we mustn't do that. You don't want to drink the bread or... Uh, uh, don't want to drink the bread at all. You don't want to eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, verse 27. Therefore, you've got to examine yourself, examine your heart. You've got to be able to discern something, whatever it is, verse 29. And if you can't do those things, you shouldn't be admitted to the Lord's table. And crucially, it is said, well, how can children do those things? If you're an infant, you can't examine yourself. You don't have the cognitive capacity or the self-reflective ability to do so. And you certainly can't discern the character of uh, Christ's presence at the table or the nature of the community around you in any sophisticated way. Therefore, because you can't do those things, if you did eat the bread and the wine, you'd be doing so in an unworthy manner, verse 27. So the Lord's Supper should be withheld from you until you're at such a stage where you can uh, do those things. Most famously, John Calvin, who's one of my theological heroes and from whom I've learned almost as much as from anybody else outside the Bible um, about the ways of the Lord, um, actually expressed this view himself. It's one of the points at which I disagree with Calvin um, in his Institute, uh, Book 4, Chapter 16. Um, he says, A self-examination ought therefore to come first, and it is vain to expect this of infants. He continues, What remembrance of this thing, I ask, shall we require of infants when they have never grasped it? And then at the end of that section, if these men had a particle of sound brain left, would they be blind to a thing so clear as obvious, so clear and obvious? Um, these men, well, he's talking about me, um, among others. Um, he thinks it's obvious that infants ought not to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't like disagreeing with Calvin. I don't really like disagreeing with anybody um, uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And regrettably, sometimes it is. And so I want to do so by just explaining what I think this text means, because otherwise it's just dismissing somebody out of hand, which isn't appropriate. Verse 28, to examine yourself, in my view, does not entail a reflexive, sort of focused on yourself, process of self-scrutiny. Uh, the verb is dokimadzo, it's the Greek term, which means frequently something more like prove yourself outwardly. And so, a better way to translate and understand verse 28 would be to say, let a person prove himself and in that way eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's in a context where what's actually going on is that poorer and uh, more insignificant socially uh, and more vulnerable perhaps people in the community at Corinth are being excluded from the Lord's Supper. Um, one goes ahead and eats and drinks and the other one doesn't have anything to eat and drink at all, Paul explains. Uh, in verse 20, 21, one goes ahead with his own meal, 
one goes, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. It seems like, in other words, there's some exclusion going on in the community at the Lord's table. Some people are being pushed away from it, not being welcomed, and that's inappropriate. Um, to do that is to drink the cup of the Lord in, in an unworthy manner. You ought not to exclude anybody who belongs in the covenant community in the way that you eat. Let a man prove himself and in that way eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. In other words, verse 27 and verse 28 um, are almost, and Pastor Neil has pointed this out, other people have pointed out as well, Pastor Neil in a recent Bible study a few months ago. Um, verse 27 and verse 28 actually comprise a pretty good argument in the context in favour of paid communion because what you're really saying is... Um, the best way to prove your faithfulness to Christ is precisely by welcoming those who are most vulnerable, least able to speak for themselves and most likely to be excluded, which includes not only the very old, but the very young. We ought to welcome those whom Jesus has welcomed. Let the children come to me. Don't keep them away. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That also makes sense in the context of verse 29, because what Paul is saying is not there's some theological discernment that's required of everybody otherwise you can't come to the Lord's table what he's saying is that those people who are guilty of excluding others from the table need to discern the body that is rightly recognize who belongs in the body of Christ it's the body of Christ that's in view not the the bread or anything of that kind um, and so rightly to receive the Lord's Supper, rightly to participate, rightly to celebrate this meal entails discerning who belongs there. And on the basis of those other scriptural arguments, it seems completely clear to me that children are among those who belong there because Genesis 17 and that narrative arc all the way through the scriptures, I'll be God to you and to your children. Okay. So I hope that's been helpful. It's been a fairly lengthy uh, journey through a bunch of covenant theology and some uh, uh, doctrine of the sacraments and how children fit into that. Uh, as ever, if you've got any questions, don't hesitate to shout. Um, I hope it's uh, both uh, encouraging and informative, also a challenge. The challenge, perhaps, is to recognise that that journey, uh, and this is directed now at you young people as well as your parents, that journey, the steeplechase that begins when you're very young and continues throughout your life, the journey of faithfulness in Christ, living a godly and wise and mature Christian life in the way that you're able to at whatever stage you're at. That's something which you're involved in now. This is not something which, well, I'll wait till I'm 25, then I'll grow up. Or I'll wait till I'm 18, then I'll start taking seriously my faith in Christ. You are called now to live a life of faith, which is to say a life of faithfulness. Because any kind of faith, any kind of faith that lacks faithfulness is not biblical faith. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, the Lord bless you. Take care. I'll see you next week.